Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. So the first reading is from Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 to 7. Isaiah 49, 1 to 7. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have laboured in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing at all, yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength, he says... It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see you and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And the next reading is from Matthew 5, 1 to 16. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks for reading, Nicole, and good morning again. Uh, I know we've just spent some time chatting to the people around us, but I want you to do that again, uh, and because uh, I know you love it. Um, and this is what I want you to do. Um, we just heard there Jesus say, you are the salt of the earth, right? You are salt. So I want you to turn to the person next to you and ask them, getting really fast, because you may have no idea, right? I want you to ask the person next to you, what on earth do you think Jesus meant by calling us salt? Does that make sense? Go for it. I'll give you like two minutes. Talk to the person next to you. What do you mean by salt, Jesus? There you go. Yeah, there we go. Clearly you have lots of ideas about what salt is, or at least what Jesus is referring to when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Um, I'm not interested in any of your responses. No. Um, Let's pray. Uh, And also I just want to say welcome to you if you're visiting or new today. Um, So good to see some very unfamiliar faces uh, before me today. I hope you feel welcome and encouraged and also good to welcome back a few familiar faces as well uh, who've you know, gone and come back and unfortunately we'll have to go again. But anyway, um, it's uh, nice to see a few faces around. Let's pray as we come before God's word. Father, thank you and we praise you, Father, for your amazing love for us in the Lord Jesus. We've already sung of your incredible gospel, uh, the gospel that is available to all people everywhere, Uh, And we pray, Father, that the good news of the gospel, Father, the wisdom of your word, and Father, the glory of your name would be uh, front and centre now as we come before your word. Father, help me to speak clearly, help me to speak faithfully and with power, and help us, Father, to hear you uh, address us this morning as your people. And Father, for those of us who are here in this room exploring who Jesus is, I pray that by your spirit you'd move in the hearts of men and women in this place. Draw them to yourself through your son. Father, we pray that by your spirit and through your word, we would all see, hear and love Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. If you're new uh, to us or you've been away for a little while, we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, the collection of, oh wow, there you go. This could be really interesting, yeah. Oh, there you go. Beware if you're under it, that's the thing. That's the, uh, that's the danger of being a really welcoming church where you keep your doors open, right? You know, everyone's welcome, Yeah. All right, look out. Last time, we, had a, we used to live in Norwood, and we had this big old house, and we used to have some of these like, little what, popping sharks turn up. And uh, one day, one got in, and it took me like two hours to get the wretched thing. I hate birds. Like, they freak me out, man, like flapping wings too fast. Go home, man, go home. Anyway, all right. We, let me start again. We're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. I do hope you've got the Sermon on the Mount open in front of you, Matthew 5, either on your device or in one of the Bibles lying around or your own. Um, The Sermon on the Mount is really, uh, it's a wonderful collection of Jesus' most famous, recognisable and best-loved statements. And so far in this series, I've tried to lay um, three foundations for understanding the Sermon on the Mount, 
which I also think are three critical foundations for the Christian life in general. Um, Firstly, I've argued that we are blessed when we follow Christ's teaching. Uh, not in a kind of trivial sense that you know, we get a prize for our good behaviour, but in a more profound sense, right? That when you obey God, you're actually participating in the mind of the maker and therefore fulfilling your purpose as a creature. Uh, we are genuinely blessed when we obey God's teaching. And I've used the illustration, right, of the manufacturer's instructions already in the series. The second thing I've shared is that we enter, all of us enter this blessed life, not by performing the Sermon on the Mount, not by performing the ethical riches of the Sermon on the Mount, but in fact by admitting our ethical poverty. The opening line of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount Uh, that we saw last week is that we are all poor in spirit, that we're morally bankrupt before God. And those who admit their moral bankruptcy scandalously scandalously get the gift of the kingdom. In other words, to the degree to which you know that your inner self before God lacks all moral credit is the degree to which the kingdom of God is yours. And this is why, thirdly, I've argued that the Christian life never validly leads to judgmentalism. I know it actually leads to judgmentalism on a number of occasions, but the reality is that in the second blessing statement we looked at last week, the second beatitude, Jesus says we are to look out at an unjust world as Christians and lament and mourn, not condemn. We lament the injustices of the world, not from a position of superiority, but knowing that we are fellow sinners. They would seem, those three, right, would seem to be three critical foundations for understanding the Sermon on the Mount and also understanding the Christian life. With those in place, we're now in a position to ask two crucial questions about the Christian life, and they are the subject of today's sermon or Bible talk. Here they are. What does the Christian life look like? Matthew chapter 5, verses 5 through 10. Uh, Jesus will help us to see that. And secondly, how will the Christian life be perceived by onlookers? Uh, So verses 11 through 16 of chapter 5. How will will we as Christians be perceived by the world? That's what we're going to think about. I'm going to take those two questions In turn, so question number one, what does the Christian life look like? Uh, That's what the remaining six Beatitudes are about. They're in chapter five of Matthew. Um, And to sort of give it away up front, it seems to me that the general impression from these Beatitudes is that followers of Jesus will be simultaneously single-minded and humble, sincere and selfless. Single-minded and humble, sincere and selfless. See if that makes sense, okay, as we unpack these Beatitudes. So verse 5, the third blessing statement. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now everyone, remember Jesus is giving this sermon in front of a big crowd Right? People who've congregated around Jesus, they're eager to hear what he has to say. Jesus is on a nice mountainside on the hills around Galilee. Now, everyone in Jesus' audience 
knew what Jesus was referring to when he said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. They knew that there was a psalm in the Old Testament with the expression, the meek will inherit the earth. Does anyone know the psalm? Anyone know the psalm? Lucky door prize if you do. No. It's Psalm 37, right? This is what Psalm 37 says. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. The word meek, praus, in Matthew's Greek, just means gentle. Gentle. Let me clarify, though. It doesn't mean, meek here doesn't mean mild-mannered, you know, in the sense of your personality. So if you happen to be a mild-mannered person, you go, oh, I'm meek. No, it's not what it means. On the other hand, if you happen to be not so mild-mannered, which is actually most of you, by the way, um, don't think that you can't be meek. Meek is gentle in the sense that Psalm 37 hints at, right? It, It is to refrain from meeting power with power, to refrain from lashing out with wrath and with anger, as Psalm 37 puts it, not lashing out against unjust power. Now, I imagine, right, just about everyone in Jesus' audience, when he first said, you know, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, most of them would have thought of the Romans who had occupied Jerusalem since 63 BC, when General Pompey and his army kind of walked into Jerusalem and looked around and says, yep, we'll have this. And by the time Jesus stands up to speak, they had had Jerusalem for about 100 years. And many people in Jesus' day, right, they wanted to be anything but meek. How could the meek inherit the land? You know, we actually have a song composed in Jerusalem by Jewish people, leaders, written about 10 years before the Romans arrived. It's not a biblical song. It's not a song written by Hillsong, but it's a song in ancient history. Listen to the hopes and expectations of this song. It's coming, yeah. The kingdom of our God is forever. Over the nations in judgment. See, O Lord, and raise up for your people their king, the son of David. Undergird him with strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, you know, Romans. To purge Jerusalem of Gentiles. To smash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar. And their king shall be the Lord, Messiah. Rah, kapow, bam, crash, you know. Contrast that with the true Messiah gentle and lowly, walking up a mountain and saying, actually, we're all poor before God. And followers that a lament, not condemn. Oh, and by the way, the gentle will inherit the earth, the meek. When you hear it like that, right, you hear it with a different sensitivity to the way the first hearers would have heard it. And I think this helps frame the other Beatitudes. So verse 6, Beatitude number 4, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
Now I know, right, the word righteousness or righteous is a damaged good today, right? You know, when do you ever hear the word righteous today outside of the compound expression self-righteous? It's entirely negative. But you see, in Jesus' day and his context, um, it was just shorthand for the life that he's calling us to live. It's just shorthand for meekness and mercy and love and turning the other cheek and loving your enemies. That's what righteousness is. But the real challenge of this beatitude is, are we hungry for it? Are we hungry for Jesus' righteousness? You know, when you're really hungry, especially when you're really thirsty, like you'll do almost anything, right, to be satisfied, won't you? Or am I the only one? Is it just me? Now, we moved into our new house the other day, and um, Friday, week ago, I hired a truck, um, and uh, it was quite a warm day, and I did some moving on the morning, worked up a real thirst. I'm not really good at driving large vehicles, you know, in confined spaces and things like that. But by lunchtime, I was so thirsty that I would do anything. I would park anywhere, right, to get a drink. So I drove into on the run on my corner into a very narrow car park because I was just desperate. I didn't care if I wrecked the truck. I was just so thirsty. No, I did care if I wrecked the truck. We'll do almost anything, right, if we're thirsty and hungry. It's a great image. Are you hungry for the kind of life that Jesus asks us to live? A life of meekness and mercy and love, lament. The thing is, I'm really conscious as a Bible teacher, as a speaker, type, leader, person, thing. I can't just stand up here this morning and say, City Light North Adelaide, be hungry. And then just move on, right? Because you can't command a passion. I I can't whip up a thirst in you. But let me put it like this. If you find yourself here this morning and you're not really hungry or thirsty for Jesus' righteousness in your life, it is perhaps because you're not thinking of Jesus' words as the mind of the maker, as the manufacturer's instructions. Because if you did view Jesus' instructions that way, it follows that your deepest desires as a human being, as a person, are satisfied in Jesus' teaching. That our human longings for security and status and peace and meaning and life and purpose could only be found in the manufacturer and the manufacturer's instructions. And if you don't, if you don't view Jesus' teaching that way, then of course you won't be hungry or thirsty for his righteousness. Begin to think of it that way and you'll know that everything you really long for, everything you're trying to satisfy with other stuff or with other people is actually found in Jesus. Verse 7 adds more content to the notion of righteousness. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown Mercy. Now, I think I've said this before, right? But, but human mercy in the Bible almost always refers to what we would call charity. Charity. Mercy often doesn't mean, you know, forgiving people who've done wrong to you. It means showing pity to someone who is in a desperate plight. 
In fact, the next time the word mercy appears in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, this charitable meaning is really clear. Here's Matthew chapter 6, verse 2. Um, we'll, we'll probably get to chapter 6, verse 2 next year, at the rate we're pr- moving through the Sermon on the Mount. But anyway, um, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honoured by others. Those words, give to the needy, simply translate the, the Greek terms, poies, elia masunes, show mercy. That's all it is. Exactly the same words we have in the Beatitudes. Show mercy. The merciful, here in the Beatitudes, the eliemenes, are those who feel pity for the plight of the poor and those in need. And I know I've said this before, Showing mercy to those in need is the chief sign that you know the mercy of God. Showing mercy to those in need is the chief sign that you know the mercy of God. Uh, Tim Keller writes in his book, The Prodigal God, the inevitable sign that you know you are a sinner saved by sheer costly grace is a sensitive social conscience and a life poured out in deeds of service to the poor. All through Scripture, the chief sign that you've tasted the greater mercy towards you, you know, a desperately impoverished sinner, is that you look out to a needy world and seek to meet some of the needs. Which is why Jesus says it's the merciful who will be shown mercy because they're the people who have been gathered up in Christ's mercy. But lest this be seen simply as, I don't know, superficial do-gooding, look at the sixth beatitude, which emphasises sincerity. Uh, Verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now the English word pure, right, in our culture and our time, now, I don't know about you, but it has sexual connotations, yeah? If we say someone is pure, we tend to think of that people in that sort of term. And Jesus absolutely will talk about sexual ethics and sexual righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount, but this has nothing to do with that. Throughout Scripture, the word pure, the expression pure, means without division, undivided or clear. And to be clear of heart simply means to be utterly sincere. The famous British, late British theologian John Stott puts it like this. So the pure in heart are those whose whole life, public and private, is transparent before God and others. Their very heart, including their thoughts and motives, is pure, unmixed with anything devious, underhand or sordid. Hypocrisy and deceit are repugnant to them. They are without deceit. He goes on. Yet few of us live such a life and live it in the open. We are tempted to wear a different mask and play a different role according to each occasion. This is not reality, but play acting, which is the essence of hypocrisy. Some people weave round themselves such a tissue of lies that they can no longer tell which part is real and which is make-believe. And here it is, only Jesus was absolutely pure in heart, being utterly guileless. 
Only Jesus was pure in heart and utterly guileless. Here's the interesting thing, brothers and sisters in Christ. God isn't expecting from us sinlessness. He's not expecting sinlessness from his people. Only Jesus was sinless and pure. But he is asking us for sincerity. Because duplicity and hypocrisy, friends, are like spots on glasses, are like cataracts in your eyes. They defile and they blind us from seeing God. Not sinlessness, but certainly sincerity. Well, the last two Beatitudes form a pretty neat pair. We are to work for peace and we're, putting, we're to put up with persecution. We're to work for peace and put up with persecution. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? Yeah? Uh, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now again, the people listening to this sermon for the first time on the mountainside in Galilee, listening to Jesus, were probably thinking about calls of some in the local area to to fight the Romans, right? They'd occupied Jerusalem for a hundred years. That's enough. Let's bring in the kingdom of God, you know, with force and with violent resistance. There certainly were some who wanted to do that. But what does Jesus say? No, no. Those who are truly blessed, those who truly participate in the mind of God will work for peace, even in that context. Um, I don't know if you've seen, anyone seen the Centre for Public Christianity's um, documentary or read their book, For the Love of God, um, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined? Anyone seen that? Watch that? Yeah, a few people. Yeah, it's really good. Worth chasing up on. But uh, in that book and on the, on the, in the documentary, they, um, CPX, Centre for Public Christianity, interviews uh, two American scholars who look like this. Um, on the left is um, Erica Chenoweth, and on the right is Maria Stephan. Um, they co-authored, right, this amazing Columbia University Press research project called Why Civil Resistance Works, right? Um, Erica, she's from the University of Denver. Maria is from uh, this, the U.S. Institute for Peace, right, which is a think tank based in the U.S., which was funded and originated by the U.S. Congress, actually. Um, anyway, that's the background. Um, they studied... Um, in this particular work, they studied 330 major civil resistance movements from 1900 through to 2006, and they assessed the success of these civil resistance movements. They came up with a really surprising conclusion, actually. Um, They came up with the conclusion that violent resistant movements succeeded in just 26% of cases, 26%. Whereas deliberately non-violent resistance movements succeeded in 53% of cases. Now, when they refer to you know, major civil resistance movements, they're talking about like you know, regime change. They're talking about um, you know, transforming, social, sweeping transformation, social transformation. And you can find the interview actually on the CPX website. But the bottom line is this, right? Peacemaking is twice as effective as violence in transforming power, which shouldn't surprise us, right? It's the mind of God, after all. All of which connects with the final beatitude. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted 
because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We must never harm for the cause of Christ, but you can put up with being harmed for Christ. Hmm. And notice it's persecution for righteousness. In other words, persecution for following the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what is blessed. Not being persecuted for being an idiot or a jerk, right? Sometimes some Christians miss the fine distinction, yeah, between that. Um, when I was a brand new Christian, uh, about 21 years old, um, I was, I'm, I'm the only Christian in my family, um, came to know Jesus, you know, loved the Lord, everything sort of went from black and white to colour, I was on fire, I was telling everything that moved about the Lord Jesus Christ. I recall as a new follower of Jesus, like feverishly reading my Bible and praying, just couldn't get enough of it, right? I'm reading books and reading my Bible, I'm in my room, feverishly reading my Bible and praying, ignoring all the chores that I'm supposed to be doing because I was still at home with my parents. One day, my mum walks into my room and she gave me this massive serve for being a lazy pig, basically. And then she stormed out. And at that moment, I genuinely thought, this is what Jesus said would happen. (laughs) I'm being persecuted. We are, isn't it true, way, 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 way too quick to think and imagine that the world is persecuting us when they're not. We will sometimes be scorned for being obnoxious and for being annoying. There's no blessing in that. There is blessing, though, for the 245 million brothers and sisters of ours who form what is known as the persecuted church around the world, who daily face physical, emotional, financial, spiritual persecution for following Jesus. I might read of a guy um, through the work of Open Doors. His, name, his name's Pastor Zhu. Um, he works in China um, and, uh, and he oversees, get this, Pastor Zhu, he oversees 6,000 churches. I mean, I grumble at home about looking after you lot. <laughs> 6,000 churches. And, and he's been in prison, Pastor Zhu, three times for publicly proclaiming the Lord, the Lord Jesus, publicly proclaiming the gospel. But guess what? He is serene. He is jovial. He is a man overflowing with joy. Why? Because he knows he is participating in the mind of God and no one can take that blessing from him, no matter what. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Well, brothers and sisters, that's what the Christian life looks like. Single-minded, humble, sincere, and selfless. Let's pivot to the second question. How will the Christian life be perceived by onlookers? How will the Christian life be perceived by the world out there? I want to make two brief remarks Uh, And then we're done for today. The first thing, right, that Jesus says in this next section is that even the most genuine Christian won't win the love of everyone, yeah? Verse 11 is kind of a, a hinge between the Beatitudes and Jesus' call to be a blessing to the world. Uh, so verse 11, 
Blessed are those who, blessed are you uh, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There is very little persecution, right, of Christians in Australia, if any. But it does seem like, in my opinion, right, it does seem like people in our general culture out there in the world are becoming, or at least feeling like they are more and more free to insult Christians, right, and falsely say all kinds of things about Christians. I don't think we're full-on persecuted, but people sort of are feeling this freedom to kind of have a crack at Christians more and more. I've got to admit that, at least. I don't know, as you know, we moved back into our house after a 13-month renovation, um, and you know these boxes just kept coming in and coming in and coming in. Um, and I was going through one of my boxes, uh, which contained some old letters and correspondence that I just hung on to uh, for a while across many years of ministry. Um, and I particularly looked at some when I was working at a church um, in Norwood um, some years ago. Um, There was one letter I picked up, which was from a local resident, literally across the road from the church, who just wrote this wonderful, beautiful, encouraging letter. The letter was just full of admiration and love. There was a glowing rap for our church and our impact on the local community and all that sort of stuff. And and even I got like a positive mention as well. It was really lovely. Um, then the thing is, I got another letter out of this pile, right? And I came across this other one, which was pretty much written at the same time by the person literally living next door to the neighbour who was all glowing, which utterly pilloried me and our church. Uh, the letter basically said this, um, Mr. Jackson is a conflicted, lightweight, evangelical juggernaut and bigot. And then it ended with a desperate plea for my then archbishop to have me removed immediately. I read it this week, right, and I thought, that's not very fair. It's not very nice. If I hadn't been reflecting on the Beatitudes, right, this week, I'd have gotten really annoyed and probably, you know, shot off a three-year late letter back to this person to say, what are you talking about? But actually, I kid you not, I felt this little flutter of joy as I read that I'm a conflicted, lightweight, evangelical, juggernaut bigot. Why? Because following Christ, however sincerely, isn't always going to win friends and influence people. Jesus says it, but it's always a participation in the mind and purposes of God. See, when you find a jewel, and you know that it's a jewel, doesn't matter if other people think it's dirt. Sometimes our best efforts, brothers and sisters, to live sincerely for Christ will backfire. Your best efforts at work, your best efforts at uni, your best efforts at home, your best efforts around the sports club, wherever they are, they will backfire at some times. And it's in those moments like that, you want to need to recover the lost Christian art of losing well. Jesus, of course, right, he was the master of losing well. And here he asks, when we're insulted, when we're spoken of falsely, rejoice, rejoice. 
That said, right, Jesus isn't endorsing a completely defeatist position, I must add, because the climactic thing that Jesus wants to show us here in this section is that righteousness may just change the world. It may just change the world. Notice in verse 13 through 16, Jesus uses two really famous metaphors, right? Salt and light to describe the influence and impact of followers of Jesus in the world. So verse 13, you, and it's actually in the plural there, right? Our English doesn't cope very well with this. Um, If we were from Queensland, we'd probably go use. Yeah, welcome if you're from Queensland. Anyway, you, use, plural, are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. What does this mean? What does it mean to be salt? Well, we know that salt had three crucial purposes in the world. Maybe you've picked these up as you were working at three with your neighbour. One purpose was seasoning, yeah? Um, It's pretty obvious, makes food taste nicer. Um, Two, it was used to preserve meat, really important. And three, salt is actually a purifier. If you, if you could afford it, you would rub it onto your skin and it kind of cleansed and purified. So what does Jesus mean when he says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth? You know, are Christians to be the seasoning of the world? Spice things up a little bit? Do we preserve a culture that is kind of going rotten? Are we a cleansing? Are we a purifying element in society? Do you know what? I don't really know. I'm pretty sure the metaphor would have been clear to the first hearers, but there's no agreement among the scholars as to exactly what Jesus meant. So I reckon it might be just better for us, right, to sort of step back and consider that at very least, Jesus' disciples will be a kind of good stuff. Because everyone knew that salt was good stuff. And actually, the classic English expression that we don't use much anymore, you know, when we describe someone as the salt of the earth, you know, oh, she's the salt of the earth, he's the salt of the earth. Our painters who have been at our house outside said to Jim, Jim and Con, the dynamic duo transforming our property. Anyway, said to Jim, oh, Jim, you're the salt of the earth. And he looked at me, what are you talking about? You're the salt of the earth. Like I said, what are you talking about? Anyway, obviously that that phrase, right, comes from this passage. But when we say someone is salt of the earth, so when I said to Jim, you're salt of the earth, we're saying that the person is kind of really good stuff. They stand out. They're authentic, solid. I reckon that'll do. Disciples of Jesus are to be salt of the earth in that sense. The second metaphor, the light metaphor, is crystal clear. And I think it's utterly powerful. Verse 14. Again, the you here is plural, use. You are the light, singular actually. Light is singular in the original. Interesting. One thing. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp or put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. The image of a light for the world, a light not just for Israel, but a light for all the nations comes straight out of the book of Isaiah. So we know that Jesus is referring to Isaiah here. Everyone in the audience would have known these great promises. Isaiah 49, 6. 
Speaking of God's people, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles and my salvation, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. And then Isaiah 51 um, says this, Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. Instruction will go out from you. My justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way and my arm will bring justice to the nations. One day, the prophet Isaiah, this is written 800 years before Jesus came to planet earth. One day, the prophet Isaiah says, God is going to light up the world with his righteousness, with his justice, with his instruction and with his salvation. And Jesus says, this day has been fulfilled. I have come And then when Christians, my redeemed, saved people, when Christians sincerely live out the Sermon on the Mount, this will be fulfilled. Isn't that extraordinary? And verse 16 just drives home the point, unless you're lacking clarity. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. To glorify God is a biblical expression for what we call today conversion. Yeah? The word conversion actually doesn't appear in the Bible. But this euphemism, right, for being converted is to give glory to God. The word glorify there is the word doxadzo, um, worship, bow down, give glory, give homage. Jesus is describing people like you and me doing exactly what Isaiah said would happen. See the light and experience the salvation of God. But the extraordinary thing is that Jesus says this will happen. How? I don't want to make this up, right? But check out verse 16. What will they see? They will see your good deeds. This can only refer to the good deeds of the Sermon on the Mount. Peacemaking, meekness, purity of heart, turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, loving your enemies, all that stuff. So here is an amazing thought, at least I think it's amazing, that I want to impress upon us today. The Sermon on the Mount isn't just the genius of God for our blessing when it's lived out by believers, motivated by the grace of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, among the nations, it is the way of lighting up the world with God's salvation. As people are drawn to our deeds of mercy and peace, they will actually see the mercy and peace of God. Brothers and sisters, if we are to reach our friends, our colleagues, our neighbours with the wisdom of God. And if we as a church here at City Light Church North Adelaide are going to reach North Adelaide and reach the inner north, it's only going to be as we proclaim the gospel and live out the Sermon on the Mount. Be the salt, be the light that we're called to be. Or if Jesus would have me say it, we can only be the light of the world when we are meek, hungry for righteousness, merciful, 
pure of heart, peacemakers, and happy to put up with persecution with joy. That's the blessed life. It's also how we pass on the blessing. Let's pray. Lord, would you please help us individually and as your church to live for you, to be pure of heart, to give ourselves wholly to the task with all of our frailty and all of our fallenness. Give ourselves wholly and sincerely and selflessly and humbly to the task of being merciful, peacemakers. Make us people hungry for your righteousness, meek and gentle, and able to put up with anything for the salvation of the nations. And Father, we ask this, that the blessing that we have received by coming to know your amazing grace Father, empower us to live out the words of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. And Father, we pray that we would do that so that others around us at work, at home, at the sporting club, at university, Father, wherever we find ourselves, that others may too come to know the blessing of the Lord Jesus, forgiveness and hope. So Father, we pray, help us to be part of what you're doing, seeing men and women and kids from the nations redeemed. And we ask this for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.